Okay, let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing. Um, I, do, I do want us to, to cover the last half of chapter 9, but in order to do that, we need to back up a little bit to 8.13. Let me just, let me just uh, kind of jump off, the, use 8.13 as a jumping off place. He, uh, we got through the, the first four trumpets. And by the way, those went pretty quick as far as trumpet concerts go. Each one had one verse. Now, the last three trumpets take chapters. It slows down dramatically as we unfold each of the last three, three um, trumpets. And the, three, the last three trumpets match these three woes. I don't, did, did, uh, did Todd talk, a lot, talk very much about the woes? In, in verse 13, look. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Remember when something is, uh, something is repeated three times in Hebrew and Greek, in both ancient languages, when something is repeated three times, that's their way of using an exclamation point. They don't have exclamation points like we do. So the way they did that uh, was to repeat it three times. You know, if you're, if you're on Twitter, the way you do it is use all caps. Uh, here they repeat it. So that's why in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation, uh, those who are before God's throne say holy, holy, holy three times. It's an emphasis. So here is this, this eagle flies over and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is an emphasis, but it's also significant that there are three because as he says, the last three trumpets match three woes. So they're going to blow one trumpet and stuff's going to happen. And then he's going to say that was the first woe. Then he blows the second trumpet and stuff happens. And he says that was the second woe. Right? Building up to the third woe, which is the final trumpet, which actually opens up seven bowls or seven plagues. Okay. Um, so the, uh, the eagle flies over. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, he says the last three trumpets are, are about to, to be blown and you're not going to like it. Woe to you. Big time woe to you. And so in verse 1 of 9, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Um, I know I'm covering stuff that Todd did, but, uh, but in order to get, in order for verse 7 to make sense, we've got to review 1 through 6 real quick. It's important that you notice that John saw a star that had fallen. That's not, that's not Texan for falling. It is past tense fallen. He didn't see a star falling from the sky. He saw a star that had already fallen. And that star is either Satan or one of the top dog bad angels that got kicked out of heaven. 
It's either Satan or maybe his second in command, something like that. I think it's Satan. Um, one of the reasons I think that is because in Luke chapter 10 at verse 18, in Luke chapter 10, 18, Jesus refers to seeing Satan like lightning uh, being kicked out of heaven and coming and falling to earth. And he uses the phrase like lightning that Satan was, uh, had fallen to earth. And so because of, of Jesus' reference there, and then later in Revelation chapter 12 at verse 9, that's 12 and 9, John sees a dragon who was kicked out of heaven and fell to earth. And uh, that dragon he defines as Satan. So with those two other references, I think the fallen star is Satan. And when this, uh, when this star fell, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Sometimes we use the word abyss. Abyss is actually a more direct translation from the Greek, but it means the same thing. It's a, it, it's a never-ending hole. Um, and notice that, that the star who fell was given the key. He didn't have the key on his own. Nothing Satan does can he do on his own authority. Everything the enemy does is only after God allows him that authority. He had to be given the key in order to get to open the bottomless pit. And so he does open the bottomless pit, and uh, from, the, from that shaft, this smoke rises. And from the smoke come locusts, summarizing verse 3. Um, locusts, throughout, and especially in the Old Testament, when locusts come, you know it's going to be bad. Remember, they are agricultural people, and locusts mean devastation. They come in and they wipe out your crops. When you don't have crops, you don't have money. When you don't have money, you don't survive. And so the, the imagery is something that brings terrible uh, destruction. This is not little insects, though. These are demons. Satan, he's, he's, he's remembering when Satan is kicked out of heaven, given the key to the abyss, from that smoke that comes out come the demons, and the demons are ready to start doing harm. They were told not to do harm in verse 4. They were told not to do harm to vegetation or to believers. Remember, they could not touch those who had the seal of God on their foreheads. And verse 5, they were allowed to torment for five months, but they were not allowed to kill anybody. What we see as the trumpets blow and later as the bowls are poured out bringing these plagues, you see a progression that each step along the way God has limited, protected the people, giving them more and more chance to respond. When they don't respond, God removes more of the limits, more of the, of the restrictions, and he allows the, the evil to get worse and worse and worse. Okay, yeah. That's a that's a very interesting question. I think the only important interpretation is that there is a limit to the time. My guess is the reason he said five months is that is generally the lifespan of a locust. 
and he just referred to them as locusts. And so I think he's playing on that idea that even locusts can't tear up your crops forever. They're eventually all going to die. And I think he's saying five months to say this is a limited time. They're going to do terrible things, and, um, but they're not allowed to kill anybody for those five months. Um, I'm also really okay with it being literal. In, in, if, you, if you sit down and figure out the numbers of the, the time here, remember tribulation is seven years. I think that um, the last seal introduces the last half of the tribulation, which we call the great tribulation, three and a half years. And so the first trumpet then would be the first five months of those three and a half years. And that does fit, if you play that out through the rest of the timeline, it does fit okay. Is that, is that close enough? Okay. <laughs> All right, good. All right. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they, they are limited in their power. They can't kill people. They can only harm. And they're limited in their time. What they're doing can only last for five months. You say, why? Again, God is slowly, gradually removing those limits and those restrictions, which allows mankind more opportunity to respond. Um, and it says their torment was like the, the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. That scorpions hurt. That's the point. This is torment. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be fun. Um, and in those days, people will seek death and not find. It's going to be so bad, they're going to wish they could die, is verse 6, okay? That's a summary over what Todd covered now, verse 7. What he does in, verse, in the next few verses is he takes a look at those so-called locusts. Remember, they are not actual beings. Uh, let me rephrase. They are not insects. They're not critters. They are demons. But when he sees this vision, he can't figure any other way to take a supernatural vision and explain it in natural language. So the best he can do is use simile. We say it's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. That's what he's going to do as he explains these demonic creatures who came from the abyss. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Uh, a horse prepared for battle. The, you, you, know, you, you got a horse, and then by this time, they had figured out a way to kind of arm the horses when they went into battle. Um, they had sheep, was it sheep, what am I trying to say, sheep meal, sheep, uh, I'm not saying that correctly, but, the, but they figured out how to drape metal around the horses. And so what he's saying is these locusts looked like they were, like they had armor. They, they were covered uh, more than just the regular locust would have looked. Um, but he didn't know how to explain it, so he's saying they're big and strong and powerful like horses that are prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. 
their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, I remember the first time that I heard this passage discussed many years ago when people were interpreting Scripture differently. You, 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 you know we interpret Scripture, especially apocalyptic Scripture. We interpret it differently based on what's going on in our world at the time. And so in the 70s, uh, Red China was the, was the, the, the great enemy that was going to come in, uh, and, and we interpreted it based on that. In the 70s, um, we had just really kind of developed helicopters in warfare. And so when you looked at this picture in the 70s, it sounds like the kind of helicopters that they had just kind of learned how to fit for war. You see, they were like horses prepared for battle. They were armored. Their heads looked like crowns of gold. There was something on the top. Their faces like human faces. When you look into the windshield of the helicopter, you see a human face. Their hair, like women's hair, means it's long. So you got this big propeller thing flipping around. Their teeth, like lion's teeth. I don't know. I don't remember that part. Prob probably the little rail things that are there. I don't, I don't remember. The breastplates, like breastplates of, of iron. You know, it would, be, it would be well protected on the bottom because people would shoot up at it. So it would be well protected on the bottom. And the noise of their wings, like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing into battle. The sound of that. All right. So that's the way it, it, it was interpreted at one time. I, I don't think that that's the best interpretation, although you can, you can carry it on. Their tails have stings in them. That's where they used to keep the torpedo things, you know. And, and it says the, the power to kill was in, the, in their, the power to hurt people was in their tails. That's, what, that's where the... the, the uh, Missiles were shot back then. Okay, so that's all really cool. I really believe, though, that instead of interpreting these pictures in terms of modern warfare, I think we're better interpreting all of chapter 9 in terms of spiritual warfare. I don't think that this is foretelling military equipment. I think this is describing demons, spiritual beings. And there's no way to, to describe what John was seeing in any other way than to use these similes. They were like lion's teeth and like uh, hair and, and like the tails of scorpions. And so these creatures are released from the abyss and they do great harm for five months, but they're not able to kill anybody. In verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called 
Apollyon. Uh, Abaddon in Hebrew is destruction. Apollyon in Greek is destroyer, basically the same word. Now, is this king who is angel of the bottomless pit? Remember, all demons were angels at one time. They are fallen angels. They're angels who rebelled and got kicked out of heaven. This angel who rules the pit. I don't know if this is Satan. There might be, there might be an argument that it would not be Satan because at this time he is the, uh, he's the prince of the powers of this world. He hasn't been cast into the abyss yet. Uh, so if it's not Satan, it is, it is a, a close um, ruler next to Satan. We understand that, that in the spirit world, angels and demons have a military-type hierarchy. Michael apparently is the top angel. And then you've got secondary angels under him. And then you've got angels under them. And then on down like this. The same thing is true in the demonic world. So this is either Satan himself. An argument in favor of that might be John 10.10 where it says the, the, uh, the enemy comes to uh, kill, steal, and destroy. Now what's his name here? Destruction. Um, so it could be Satan. If it's not Satan because he hasn't been cast into the abyss yet, well, then it's his right-hand man who's in charge of the abyss. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. We'll, we'll do Gog and Magog when we get to Armageddon and remind me about that. Okay, that's good. I'm serious. Make a note in your phone or something and remind me because that takes a long time to unfold that. I don't think this is, I don't think this is that. But I know why they're saying that and we'll unfold that. You, do got, you have to go back to Ezekiel to understand Armageddon. You go back to Ezekiel and look at Gog and Magog and then Gog and Magog show up in, at Armageddon and you've got to unfold all that stuff and it's going to take at least one night just to do that. But we'll get to it. So, whoever this is, uh, they have a king over them, again, which is demonstration to me that they are not describing military machines because they have a king over them. I think these are the demons. And so they, do, they wreak havoc for five months. Then notice verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So you remember we, we had, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the first one. There's two more to come. So that gets us through the first five trumpets. And then we're ready for the sixth trumpet. Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. We don't know who that voice is coming from. We know that the Lamb, God the Son, Jesus, is in the throne room at this time. We know that. He, he just opened the seals off of the, 
the, the scroll. It could be the voice of the Lamb, the voice of Jesus. But we also know that there is an angel there who speaks on behalf of God. It could also be any of the four elders or the, uh, or the four creatures or the 24 elders. It could be any of these people. We don't know who says this, but there is a voice. I think the important thing is not whose voice is it, but where does the voice come from? It says that I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And don't get too hung up on, on the four horns. It's just it's describing the altar that we looked at uh, two weeks ago. There is an altar that is uh, where they, they burn the incense inside the holy place. Remember we talked about it, it's connected to the, temp, to the tabernacle and then the temple, and there is apparently a version of this in heaven. There's an altar. At that altar, last time we looked at it, we heard the martyrs who were at that altar, and they were saying, God, how long until you bring vengeance on those who killed us. How long until you bring vengeance? That's why it's significant that we hear the voice coming from that altar. Now the four horns on the corners, that's just a description of the altar as it's described in the temple. There, there's, there's, uh, there's a little, I guess you'd call it a horn, there's a little thing on each corner of this altar. That's not the, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the martyrs have been at that altar. That's where they burn the incense, which represents the prayers of the martyrs. And they've been praying, God, when? And from that very spot, we hear the voice that basically says, now. The voice is basically answering their prayers. Now it's time for vengeance. And so he hears the voice from the four horns of the golden altar from before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now remember when you see the word angel, that does not always necessarily mean the good guys in heaven. Because even the bad guys that were kicked out of heaven were angels. And so what happens is the voice says, we have been holding back these forces of evil, four fallen angels. In, in, we, we talked about a military structure earlier. I think these are like four generals. These are like four commanders of armies who have been held back at the river Euphrates. Now, it's interesting that they use that imagery of the river Euphrates because that has always played a major part in the story of the people of God. This is where most of the story that you and I are familiar with happens. This is the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. So kind of right about in here is Jerusalem, and kind of right about in here is Bethlehem. Galilee's up here, 
And so this is where most of the stories that we read about happen. But in Genesis chapter 2, there is a river that comes out of the Garden of Eden. That river splits into four rivers. One of those rivers is the Euphrates. And so that's the first time that we're introduced to the Euphrates. But we, we come across the Euphrates a number of times after that. Um, for example, almost all of the enemies that come to get God's people come from the other side of the Euphrates. Assyria is over here. By the way, this is the Euphrates. Assyria is over here somewhere. Babylon is over here somewhere. Persia is over here somewhere. So the enemies are always just on the other side of the Euphrates. When God gives them the promised land, he tells them in Scripture, the promised land is bordered by this and this and this and this and this. One of the borders of the promised land is the Euphrates. So God says, this is, this is your area over here. That's where, the, that's where the pagans live. That's where the other people live. That's, that's not yours. You stay away from that side. So throughout Scripture, and, and by the way, now in, John's, in Jesus' time and now in John's time, the Roman Empire is here. And while they basically have power across the whole world, technically their empire is basically bordered along the Euphrates. So again, you've got, you've got the Euphrates coming up over and over and over in the story. And the bad guys are always just on the other side of the Euphrates. So when he says, um, hold back, that, that there have been four angels who have been held back at the, at the Euphrates, there's, uh, there's two ways to look at that. One is that... Uh, they have not been allowed to hurt God's people until now. But now they're not only going to hurt God's people, they're going to hurt all the people. They're going to hurt everybody. One third. And remember, on the fourth seal, a fourth of the world's population was killed. So we're, we're down 75% from where we were, I'm sorry, we're down 25% from where we were before the tribulation started. Now they're going to kill a third of what's left, which means that we're over a half of the population that we had before the tribulation. By the time you get to this trumpet, over a half of the world's population gets, gets killed throughout all this. And this is going to happen when these four angels are finally allowed to come in. They've been chomping at the bit, ready to come in and hurt people. And in his grace, God has been holding them back, not allowing them to come. But since it is time now, he, uh, he, he, he says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. That's where the enemies always come from. And then you see this is, a, this is a strange verse, verse 15. 
but it's important. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. In other words, God had a very specific time that he was going to allow them to be set free to, to start killing people. All of this happens specifically in God's timing. Nothing is coincidence. He is in complete control. He is always sovereign. Number 16, verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And you do all that, figure all that out, put all those zeros together, 200 million. So this is a vast army. 200 million troops led by these angels. So here we got to here we got to play with 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 these two ideas. One, we're still talking about spiritual beings, four angels bringing 200 million demons to the rest of the world to wreak havoc and kill people. Or I think this is also possible that what happens in the spirit realm is also represented and happening in the physical realm. If you look in Daniel chapter 10, there is a prince of Persia who it becomes clear is, a, is an angel, is a spiritual being. There, there's a, there are also princes of other regions. Some even say that Michael is the prince of Israel. The archangel is the, the one spirit being who oversees Israel, perhaps. That's not in Scripture. But the idea is that there are spiritual beings who are assigned to different regions. And when the good spirit, when, when the good angels fight the bad angels, then the good guys on the earth fight the bad guys on the earth. So that if the, if the prince of Persia gets in a fight with the prince of Israel in the spirit realm, then the armies of Persia get in a fight with the armies of Israel in the physical realm. If you ever want to see, if you ever want to read a very good fiction book, remember it's fiction, but a good book that helps us get how that works is Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. It's been out a long time, but it's a really good book. And it, it shows you how the spirit realm and the physical realm might be tied together. And what happens here is happening because of the constant spiritual warfare that's happening in the spirit realm. If that's the case, then these four spiritual beings who have been held back actually represent four nations. And these four nations now start wiping out the rest of the world. They start turning on each other, and 200 million people make this vast group of four armies, and they kill a third of, of the world. And so he, uh, he, he wants us to understand this, the vision he has. Again, how do you describe spiritual visions in physical ways? 
This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. What is the color of fire? Yeah, we'll say it's red. The color of sapphire is blue. Matter of fact, some of your translations don't say sapphire. They, 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 uh, they use a different uh, hyacinth, which is actually a, a flower, but it's a blue flower. So they, they're, using, they're using a word that means blue. And then sulfur is yellow, but I don't have a yellow marker, so we made it orange. But you know sulfur, also called brimstone, when it, when it burns, there's that flame that lets off a, uh, a, a, a I want to say toxic, I don't know if that's fair, but at least it's a nauseous odor and a, and a, a smoke, you know. It'll make you pretty dang sick. Smells terrible, and, and, and it can make you really miserable. And so they're breastplates of these creatures represent fire, smoke, and sulfur. And let me show you how that, uh, they're the color of fire, uh, sapphire, which is smoke, and, and sulfur. The heads of the horse, I'm at the last of 17. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So these creatures are bringing Fire, smoke, and sulfur. Can you think of any place that the Bible talks about that could be described as a place of fire, smoke, and sulfur? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where that phrase comes from, where those old fire and brimstone preachers, they're preaching fire, smoke, and sulfur, fire, smoke, and brimstone. They're preaching hell. These are creatures from hell. From their own mouths come hell, come fire, smoke, and brimstone. And 18, by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and, and, and uh, sulfur, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Again, he sees these spiritual things and he's trying to put them in words. I think what's important to us is these are incredibly dangerous creatures who are not only so scary that, that their heads are like lions, but they're scary on both ends. This is how bad they are. They're bad on the front. Coming and going. Perfect, Betty. Perfect. Yeah. No, I get your point, and 
I, I think that it's all, I don't know, because he doesn't, he just kind of jumps in describing the horses, but he didn't say there were horses. He said earlier, he said that they, the four angels are set free and they bring with them this uh, massive army. I think everybody in the army is riding one of these scary horses. So you got 200 million of these horses that are coming through with this, with this awesome, terrible power. Uh, Mounted troops, there you go. Mounted troops, good, good, yeah. For the power of the horses in 19 is in their mouths and in their tails. Tails are like serpents. Uh, serpents often re refer to Satan and the demons. I think the important thing there is he sees a thing that he can't describe and he's just saying it's bad both ways. The rest of mankind. Now, that dead gum, I don't, I, this just blows my mind. It just blows my mind what I'm about to read to you. The rest of mankind, and there ain't much left, by the way. Over half of the population of the world has been killed now in give or take four years. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. He says... They saw all this awesome power. They still had a chance, Betty. Not only did they have a chance, but God, God gave them instruction. Remember, during this time, there are 144,000 evangelists. Now, I take that to represent the church at large. I think that there's more than the literal number. But, but even if we go with the more... Um, conservative traditional interpretation that means that there are 144,000 Jewish believers who are telling the, the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ so they are there later we're going to find out that during this time there are also these two massive witnesses that are telling the truth we'll hear about them later that's happening but while that's happening there are people who are getting saved along the way. And they are telling folks the truth. So the people not only have the opportunity to hear the truth, but then they see with their own eyes the judgment of God on those who reject it. And even still, they want to turn to their false gods who cannot see or hear or walk. Rejecting the awesome power that they see displayed before them. They'd rather trust in the dollar bill. Or the boat. Or the whatever. 